the first Monday of the month, and even in lockdown, that means it's time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, bringing calm in the chaos. We're broadcasting from an unusually quiet artscape theatre in Cape Town, a sign of the time indeed. I'm Cindy Moritz, and even though it's been hard to focus for some, our team of reviewers has yet again brought some brilliant reading recommendations to the table. And we have a wonderful book to give away, so listen well, and you could be the lucky winner this month. Vanessa Levenstein could not contain her excitement at getting her hands on Hamnet by one of her favorite authors, Maggie O'Farrell. Melvin Minnar calls The Lost Pianos of Siberia by Sophie Roberts a glorious travelogue with a difference. And Beryl Eichenberger reviewed A Daughter's Tale by Onando Lucas Correa, in which seven decades of secrets unravel with the arrival of a box of letters from the distant past. Beverly Ruiz Muller grappled with her views on the much-anticipated third in trilogy, The Mirror and the Light, by Hilary Mantel, and Philip Todras was impressed with Jonathan Safran Foer's ability to give a personal and emotive voice to climate change in his latest offering, We Are the Weather. John Hanks calls Warwick and Michelle Tartbitten's A Guide to Dragonflies and Damselflies of South Africa one of the best illustrated field guides anywhere in the world. And Leslie Beek suggests two good reads for the 10 to 12-year-old age group, Tiger Heart by Penny Crimes and Mirror Magic by Claire Fayers. Vanessa Levenstein you were transfixed by Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, which is set in disease-ridden Shakespearean England and has been described as a shattering evocation of a family ravaged by grief and loss. If one could suspend one's disbelief and accept for a moment that there was an otherworldly force at work behind Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, it would be plausible to believe that William Shakespeare and his wife Agnes Hathaway conjured O'Farrell. Reading this work, it seems as if O'Farrell hopped back to the Elizabethan era, made notes with a feather quill, and then returned to the present day and her laptop. Very little is known about the bard and his wife, and it's in this interesting vacuum that O'Farrell finds her story. We know Shakespeare married a woman older than him called Agnes, even though she's popularly referred to as Anne. We know they had three children, and their son Hamnet died. O'Farrell also points out in the author's notes at the end that while Shakespeare lived during the time of the Black Death, the pestilence, it's never mentioned in his work. She writes, I've always wondered about this absence and its possible significance. Reading Hamlet at the time of the coronavirus lockdown felt uncanny. Listen to the sentence. He wears that mask because he thinks it will protect him, she says, from the pestilence. His mother nods. The narrative floats between the young Shakespeare, who has just met Agnes, their courtship and early years together, and the time of Hamlet's death. O'Farrell seamlessly dances between timelines. Center stage of her story is the enigmatic Agnes. Shakespeare, whose name is never mentioned, is a mere slip of a youth, a Latin tutor, a dreamer bullied by his violent father. While Agnes can barely read or write, she has many other talents. She's a herbalist and sees something in her future husband that nobody else does. 
Her brother Bartholomew says as much to the young Shakespeare. What do you want to go marrying him for? I said to her. What use is he? You know what she said to me? The husband shakes his head. What did she say? That you had more hidden inside you than anyone. Agnes is not quite of this world. She can look at a person and see right into their soul, Shakespeare tells his sister. The villagers describe her as a creature, an elf, a sorceress, a forest spirit. Yet above all, Agnes is a mother. And Hamnet is, at its core, about a mother's loss and grief, and how we carry grief, how we process loss, and how it becomes part of who we are. It was Hamnet's twin, Judith, who first took ill who was expected to die, and in true Shakespearean manner the identity of the twins gets swapped. Farrell uses Shakespearean themes and places in the most natural way. It's almost like a good interviewer who cannot allow themselves to be starstruck while chatting to their guest. So too she writes with ease, not intimidated, yet prudent with her choices. Literary scholars and thespians over the ages have deconstructed and reinterpreted Hamlet. Freud proposed that Hamlet was unable to make up his mind to kill Claudius owing to his own Oedipus complex, and to further support this theory that the play was written immediately after the death of Shakespeare's father and following the death of Shakespeare's own son, Hamlet. O'Farrell's interpretation is from the perspective of Agnes, whose pain and catharsis is as moving as it's an illuminating interpretation of the dramatic work. Hamlet is regarded to be one of Shakespeare's finest work, and no doubt Hamlet is one of O'Farrell's finest. Competition time, and we've made it easy-peasy for you to win a copy of Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell, just reviewed here by Vanessa Levenstein. Send FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the keyword, book choice, your full name, and answer to this question. Which poet and playwright's name was conspicuously never mentioned in the novel Hamnet? Our SMS line is 39792, for which standard rates apply. Our WhatsApp and Telegram line is 061-799-1013. So remember to send the keyword book choice, your full name and the answer via SMS or Telegram, one or WhatsApp, one entry per person, and the competition closes at 12.45 p.m. They say that falling in love is wonderful. It's Wonderful, wonderful 
You were listening to They Say That Falling in Love is Wonderful from Irvin Berlin's musical Annie Get Your Gun, sung by Ger Corsten and Nelly Dutoy. Melvin Minar, you took us on a journey to find the lost pianos of, surprisingly, Siberia. This time of confinement has sent many people on imaginary trips of exploration or relaxation, some hitched onto geographic documentaries, others on the great grand library of travel books. Is there anything that pricks the imaginative mind more than the finely tuned wordsmith and sussed observer of the human condition in territories beyond the ordinary imagination? Well, I've been blessed by having as company during the past month Sophie Roberts's glorious travelogue with a difference called The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Yes, say the three words slowly, Lost Pianos and Siberia, and you get an idea of the prick of intrigue this elucidated. I mean, pianos in a part of the globe that many will consider the end of the earth. But then Roberts reminds the reader on page 283, as she sets out a narrative to the most eastern part of Russia, that the great Soviet pianist Satoslav Richter toured and played in the most desolate of Siberian places in 1986. This riveting fact He drew with a dark marker a route through Siberia, she writes, hits home the remarkable cultural presence of music and the piano in particular in what to most of us is a mysterious geographical and historical construct of a place somewhere. Sophie Roberts' book, however, is far more than what seems like a foolish eccentric rush for romantic treasures, if one can even think of romance or treasure when the temperature dips double digits below freezing as it does over there. Pianos and the most exotic handmade craft of their key and soundboards are perhaps the ultimate means of interpretive creation, and the glory of missing musical instruments linked to a faded grand past may well be the inventive point of departure for this acclaimed travel journalist. But what she records is a vivid description of this enormous region as it is now and what it was. To say it's intriguing is to say how little we really know. With a bright clarity of her pictorial prose, Roberts frequently sent me off to Google to find out more and to read more. Not that she doesn't provide proper footnotes at timelines. Many times of upheaval during the Russian political past, Siberia was the ultimate place of abandonment, of exile in its worst possible condition the expanse of the region, the extremities of its climate, its desolation, the end of the world for the Nene local people, located Siberia as a place of evil. Even before Tsarist times, in fact in 1591, a revolt set off the first deportees beyond the Ural Mountains. Until after the Gulag of Stalin, Siberia signaled only the worst of punishment, the edge of survival, the horror of topography. And yet, as Roberts records, often in enchanting and even poetic turns of phrase, the 13 million square meters are an expanse of enchanting presence and rarefied beauty. The people who inhabit this mysterious region will obviously also be characters to encounter, to describe and to remember. One such is Vera Lotta Shevchenko, an acclaimed French-born pianist who lived an eccentric final life in the Soviet science city called Akademgorodov. Roberts took on the task of finding her last piano 
Mühlbach from pre-revolution, which he does at the local university. Another is the composer Zevolot Zaderatsky, once the last Sarovich's piano teacher, who was sent to the Gulag camps in Kulima. From 1937 to 1938, he composed a cycle of 24 preludes and fugues on telegraph forms. Roberts frames one of the most beautiful written travel books of recent times around the hunt for the perfect piano for a great pianist she encountered of all places in the Mongolian steppes. It gives the narrative a dynamic plot, charted as he looks for and finds all kinds of pianos. She takes the serious numbers for later research. But for readers of the graphic and human-infused documentation of place and person that propels this book great joy, it's a wonderful read. Go and find it and put Sostakovich on the speakers. We've made it so easy for you to win a copy of Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, reviewed earlier on the show by Vanessa Levenstein. All you have to do is send FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the keyword book choice, your full name and answer to this question. Which poet and playwright's name was conspicuously never mentioned in the novel Hamnet? Our SMS line is 39792, standard rate supply, and our WhatsApp and Telegram line is 061-799-1013. So remember, send the keyword book choice, your full name and the answer via SMS, WhatsApp or Telegram. One entry per person and the competition will close at 12.45.
was Michelle, one of the Beatles' biggest hits, composed by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, played by Mike Lartz on the saxophone and Eddie Kirkwood on keyboards. Beryl Eichenberger, you delved into past secrets in The Daughter's Tale by Arnando Lucas Correa, described as a family saga which takes readers from Nazi-occupied Berlin to modern-day New York City. The Daughter's Tale, Armando Lucas Correa. Part of the human DNA, I think, is not to accept the other. The other because of the color of their skin or the language they speak or the religion they practice or whatever. It's more than not being tolerant. It's a deep fear of something that is different and makes us turn away. So says Cuban author Armando Lucas Correa. Nothing illustrates this more than the stories from the Holocaust and, of course, from our own history. But it is Correa's new novel, The Daughter's Tale, that takes us along the path of a world gone mad and a time that must never be repeated. We are bound by these stories to ensure that the Holocaust is never forgotten. And with so many authors choosing to write about the Holocaust and narrate these truth-inspired novels, it is a reality check on the strength of the human spirit that we all need to heed. And women have more than their place in the countless stories of survival, each story with its own pathos and thread, and the question of how many lives we have to live to survive. In this beautifully described, yet at times harrowing narrative, it is the journey of Amanda and Julius Sternberg's daughters who we follow. The book opens in New York, 2015, where the Catholic, 80-year-old Elise Duval, a French World War II refugee, is visited by two strangers. An ebony box containing letters written on the pages of a book of botany brings Elise face-to-face with a past she has successfully buried for nearly seven decades. The letters are from her mother, and she is now forced to confront memories of a time of pain, fear, and abandonment, but also of the kindness and faith of extraordinary people. We return to the Berlin of 1933 to join a happy household where Amanda's bookshop, Garden of Letters, is a haven for the Berlin intelligentsia. Julius is a successful heart specialist with a thriving practice. Their life is complete when their daughters are born, the elder Vera and the younger Lena. They live the good life as so many other Jewish families did. But of course, all that changes. Judith's practice is attacked, and he is imprisoned, and when Amanda knows that she can no longer protect her much-lauded bookstore, she saves a beloved, beautifully illustrated botanical book, which her own father had read to her as a child. Through her loyal friend Hilda, Amanda is able to protect her two small daughters, until a grateful patient smuggles a letter from Julius urging her to leave Berlin and travel to Havana on the ill-fated St. Louis, another tragic war story on its own. Through fear and darkness, the journey begins. But as Amanda prepares to escape to the south of France, she is forced to make a decision that will govern the lives of both her daughters. Central to the story is the rhythm of a heartbeat, a method against fear that Julius had taught his daughters. Whenever you are afraid and can feel your heart racing, start counting its beats. Count them and think of each one, because you're the only person who can control them. As the silence between one beat and the next grows, your fear will start to disappear. 
we need those silences to exist, to think. As we join the trek to survival and the time in France, we meet the gentle Claire and her daughter Danielle, the faithful father Marcel, who uses his faith to save life. When Amanda once again has to flee from the oncoming Germans, Claire becomes mother to another daughter. And so the many lives of Elise Duval begins. Blousy Marie-Louise, the cook, is the final saviour before the war ends and another new beginning. This is immersive reading written in beautifully crafted prose that is both alive and intelligent. What I particularly loved was this link to books and as I read I was engulfed by the sense of love and hope that is threaded through. A reminder that these are the elements that keep us alive. Correa is a master storyteller and successfully weaves the historical events of the St. Louis, the horrific massacre in 1944 of the French village of Orador sur Glane, and a daughter's tale to present a memorable novel. This is your last chance this month to enter our easy competition to win a copy of Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Send FMR a WhatsApp, Telegram or SMS with the keyword book choice, your full name and answer to this question. Which poet and playwright's name was conspicuously never mentioned in the novel Hamnet? Our SMS line is 39792, standard rate supply. Our WhatsApp and Telegram is 061-799-1013. So remember to send the keyword book choice, your full name and the answer via SMS, WhatsApp or Telegram. One entry per person and the competition is closing soon at 12.45. Beverly Rose Muller had strong views on the much-anticipated the Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. She shares her opinion with fellow bibliophiles. When I finish a book I really like, I do something without thinking much about it. I wear it in my hand for a while, reluctant to let it go. And over many years I have found this a really reliable test of whether I do like the book a lot or not. Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light was a not. This last in her trilogy about Henry VIII and his venal hatchet man, Thomas Cromwell. Oh, I could just not get rid of it huge bulk quickly enough, actually physically removing it from my room. Since then I've wondered why I had such an extreme reaction to a book that has been hailed by critics and readers everywhere as a triumph. Well, despite its rich writing, the sculptured sentences as ravishing as a curl of sweet butter, I came to resent being manipulated into an unsustainable set of propositions. It just felt like being led by a beautifully embroidered lead attached to a ring in my nose. Of course all novels are designs of the imagination, and by their very nature manipulative. But content matters too. Henry was a resentful youth, a younger brother not destined to become king. And unlike his father, who won his crown on the battlefield and therefore understood hardship, Henry was the equivalent of a modern-day trust fund kid. Youthfully pretty, spoiled, his every wish and need bowed and scraped to, his whims and tantrums indulged. I did like this comment in the book by Cromwell, to hear Henry talk, 
you would think God ought to be grateful for all Henry has done for him. Nobody said no to Henry and survived. It's not difficult to think of a modern example of such a man and what destruction this unfettered behavior causes. Henry was a mirror reflecting our own weaknesses and he emitted little light other than from the jewels he had grasped by greed. Thomas Cromwell came from poverty, a toughened kid, a ruthless man. He knew what it was to coldly order a death or to execute it. He was brilliant. He became the highest in the land. And that was his undoing, for he'd forgotten the bitter lesson learned by his former master, Cardinal Wolseley, who had become too rich and powerful for Henry's liking, thereby dying in disgrace and poverty, Henry, of course, scooping up his fortune. In Wolf Hall, the wonderful first novel in this trilogy about the king and his hatchet man, Mantel fascinated us with her fresh, masterly grasp of the period. Yet in this last, far too long novel, she seems to have made the mistake, as many authors have, of falling in love with her characters and so persuading us that there is something richer, more lustrous within that we cannot see. Henry ended up hugely obese, selfish to the core, and his crankiness caused lakes of blood to flow. Cromwell was not, as she depicts, a wise and philosophic man who met his inevitable death with resignation. But there's another creature in this book, not human, a captive leopard delivered to Cromwell in poor condition. A young servant nurses it back to health, but Cromwell warns him, never turn your back on it. No matter how familiar it becomes, it has murder in its heart. Mantel reminds us that life arranges a fight you cannot win. Why then, I wonder, do we need yet another book in the series, yet another 880 pages to tell us this, no matter how pretty the writing? Now, as an antidote to my reservations, I return to one of my favorite novels, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. Its medieval rhetoric, languages, and references are bracingly challenging. While it offers a brisk, burning plot in an abbey with a great library and a secret that zealots would not have us know. This is an adult book and assumes that you have the intelligence to make your own decisions about the content and enough love of reason and writing to enjoy the ride. It remains magnificent. I think Mentor will be nominated for the Booker Prize this year and probably win it. Yet The Mirror and the Light is not more than an incredibly protracted extension of her earlier books in this series. So, I wonder about the justice of that. In the decades to come, I think it will be Wolf Hall that is remembered as her finest. And the name of the rose will retain its glory for decades, and I hope long after. I could be wrong, of course. I so often am. Darling, it's wonderful to be in love with you. Darling, it's wonderful to know you love me too. Gee, it's so wonderful. 
That was Darling It's Wonderful, sung by Virginia Lee. Philip Todras, you were very impressed with Jonathan Safran Foer's ability to give a personal and emotive voice to climate change in We Are the Weather. Reading We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast seems strangely propitious as Jonathan Safran Foer starts by looking at the powerful collective response of people during World War II. Addressing what could be done, President Roosevelt observed that not everyone is on the battlefront. But the one front where everyone can take action is in their daily lives and in their daily tasks. And I quote, As I told Congress, sacrifice is not exactly the proper word with which to describe this program of self-denial. When at the end of this great struggle, we shall have saved our free way of life, we shall have made no sacrifice. End quote. Currently, we are having to take action on the COVID-19 battlefield as we face the reality of the situation. It's not something that is over there. It is palpably, threateningly with us. This book is about bridging the over there attitude and helping us to face reality, the now. Sepharpur argues the distance between awareness and feeling can make it very difficult for even thoughtful and politically engaged people, people who want to act, to quote, if we don't act until we feel the crisis that we curiously call environmental, as if the destruction of our planet was merely a context, everyone will be committed to solving a problem that can no longer be solved. Compounding the over-there quality of the planetary crisis the fatigue of the imagination is exhausting to contemplate the complexity and scale of the threats we face. End quote. He defines the climate crisis as a crisis of belief. And this is where I need to acknowledge Saffron Poor's skill as a wordsmith. He is able to engage, captivate, and personalize narrative in a way that demystifies and makes the unbelievable believable. The title itself we Are the Weather, places you, the reader, central to the action that he is advocating. The subtitle, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, seemed to me to indicate that the issues were something you tackled first thing, something that you needed to prioritize. Yes, that is true. But in fact, it is only on page 64 that the author reveals that this is a book about the impacts of animal agriculture on the environment. He writes, that conversations about meat, dairy, and eggs make people defensive, yet the truth he wants us to face. We cannot save the planet unless we significantly reduce our consumption of animal products. The book is an argument for the collective act to eat differently, specifically no animal products before dinner. Having brought us to this point in the first section of the book titled Unbelievable, we moved into the next section, how to prevent the greatest dying. From eloquent prose, we move into well-argued notes in point form under subtitles such as Degrees of Change, The First Crisis, The First Farming, Why Greenhouse Gases Matter, Climate Change is a Ticking Time Bomb. What is important to note that all these issues are real, 
And although he does not prioritize which actions might be most effective, he emphasizes that it is not a question of one or the other. It's about yes and more. That's why he provides, for instance, less prescriptive subheadings such as animal agriculture is a slash the leading cause of climate change, while quoting various sources providing significantly varying assessments of animal agriculture's overall contribution to greenhouse gas emissions, the conclusion is that we cannot address climate change without addressing animal agriculture. The final sections are titled Only Home, Dispute with a Soul, and More Life, while taking through what seems like improbable but possibly not science fiction solutions then through that difficult process called change. And finally, to an elegant belief that our soul instructs us to cling to life. Reading We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast by Jonathan Daphne Foer will hopefully convince that collective action is the way to save our home and our way of life. And it all starts with what we eat and don't eat for breakfast. I'm going to take this opportunity to share with you something that resonated with me during this time of lockdown where sometimes it feels like some of our uh, freedoms have been denied in subtle ways. Um, sometimes we can't really put words to what we're feeling. But I read an open letter read, um, written by Helen Moffat, one of our local authors, to the government, um, and she was telling them that all books are educational – all books, every one of them, in light of their um, rule that only educational books should be sold. So Helen writes, Dear Government, all books are educational, all of them. You might feel that some kinds of books are not educational, but all books contain role models, even graphic novels, what you might call comic books and thrillers. Almost all fiction deals with the struggle between good and evil, order and disorder. This is why reading is so comforting. Stories set the world to rights. Obstacles are overcome. As internationally acclaimed poet and performer Lebo Mashili has pointed out, it is artists and writers who do the work of processing of black pain and trauma in this country, in our stories, our plays, our poems, our memoirs, our explorations of history. And right now, the entire world is traumatized and grieving. We are going to need every resource possible to survive what lies ahead. And those resources are not just material. Fretful children at home, teens wondering how to research a school project, a stressed single parent needing to spend a few minutes after the children have gone to sleep, escaping into a world of happily ever after. Scholars, academics and the scientists we're relying on to save us, elderly people who are not tech-savvy and who are in anguish at the prospects of months of self-isolation. We all need books. So those were Helen wo Helen's words, and you can find the rest of her beautifully written open letter to the government on her blog, com. Right, John Hanks, you were duly impressed by Warwick and Michelle Tartbitten's A Guide to the Dragonflies and Damselflies of South Africa, calling it one of the best illustrated field guides anywhere in the world. Warwick and Michelle Tarbiton have produced what must rate as one of the best illustrated field guides anywhere in the world, and that is indeed a serious compliment. 
I'm referring to their second, a completely revised edition of A Guide to the Dragonflies and Damselflies of South Africa, another superb production of straight nature with exceptional color photographs of all the 164 species that have been recorded in South Africa, Lesotho, and Swaziland. I'm sure all listeners would have no problems in recognizing dragonflies, a common name for an order of insects strongly associated with water, especially in the warmer summer months. The name actually embraces two suborders of insects, which are the true dragonflies and the superficially similar-looking damselflies. The difference between the two is clearly illustrated on the immediate inside and back pages of this book. Both have relatively enormous eyes in common and exceptionally keen eyesight, which they need for their totally predatory lifestyle, killing a range of other insects with their strongly developed mouth parts. The Tarbertons have used 11 very clearly described guidelines to help with the identification of each of the 164 species with absolutely first-class color plates, illustrating detailed diagnostic features accompanied by up-to-date distribution maps. Many of the dragonflies and damselflies can be identified at a glance by their striking appearance and their spectacular colors. But if they are not that close to you, they can be identified through binoculars with further help by noting their behavior. For example, some hunt when flying, as does a sparrowhawk, with amazing bursts of speed of up to 35 kilometers per hour, whilst others sit and wait, ambushing their prey with a quick dash. Others will have to be caught and examined very carefully with a hand lens to confirm the species, especially those that are identified by differences in wing venation. I'm sure this book will stimulate an interest in this remarkably diverse and attractive component of our biodiversity, and it might even encourage conservation professionals to look beyond the emphasis on what we refer to as the charismatic megafauna when new protected areas being planned. In Japan, nature reserves have been specifically established to protect dragonflies, where admittedly they have a special place in the country's culture and folklore. I'm sure the Tarbertons will be the first to welcome the designation of Africa's first dragonfly reserve, for which they would deserve full credit. Well done, Warwick and Michelle, on this exceptional publication. The title again, A Guide to the Dragonflies and Damselflies of South Africa. It's a totally revised second edition. It's published by Straight Nature in Cape Town, and you can buy a copy for 310 rand.
Stay As Sweet As You Are, sung by Danny Williams. Competition lines are now closed, so please listen to the announcement at the end of the show to see if you are the lucky winner. Thanks to Jonathan Ball Publishers for their generous offer of a prize. Leslie Beek has selected two good reads for the 10 to 12-year-old age group, Tiger Heart by Penny Crimes and Mirror Magic by Claire Fairs. If I was 11 years old right now, I would be doing the same thing I was doing all those dim and distant years ago when I was 11. I'd be reading. But I would most definitely be reading something different. In the dim and distant, the choice was huge, but the kind of reading was in some ways narrower. There was a more conventional approach to writing for children and young people. The adventurers were less, well, adventurous. The social realities less gritty. The world was far, far less technical. I read every word of Rosemary Sutcliffe's historical novels and wrote endless letters to an imaginary centurion called Aquila. You wouldn't catch a preteen doing that in this day and age. But some things don't change. Books bring comfort, whatever genre appeals to whatever time. And I have chosen today's books with that in mind. Comfort is what we all need right now, particularly perhaps the vulnerable 10 to 12-year-old age group navigating between childhood and teenagership. Tiger Heart by Penny Crimes spoke to me immediately when I saw the cover in a bookshop. Girl Faces Tiger, surely going to be one of the best covers of 2020 because it says wordlessly exactly what the book is about. Then I opened the book and was hooked, as you might be. Listen. Fly never meant to end up in the cage with the managing tiger. She just saw her chance to skedaddle and she took it. And even when the cloud of soot cleared 
and she saw the golden eyes of a killer staring into hers, she didn't straightaway turn round and climb back up the chimney, because there was worse waiting for her back on the roof. At least, she realized, looking at those teeth, the tiger would swallow her down in one bite and it would all be over quick. Instead of having bits knocked off her day by day till there was nought left, she'd seen that done to others and she wasn't going to let it happen to her. Well, this is the right pandalorum, I said to the tiger. The tiger didn't say anything back for the moment. You ain't stuffed, is you? Fly asked, half hoping but half not. There'd be nothing to brag about over a stuffed tiger. I love a good beginning to a book and they don't come much better than this. We get a sharp insight into who we are dealing with here. A deliciously spiky young woman with her wits about her and a great deal of bravery hidden under the bravado. We also get quite a few clues about her background, although these might be harder to pick up for a reader in Africa. Flea is a child chimney sweep in 19th century London, as well as being in and from a half-magical world. She is also from somewhere else, an exotic somewhere, that she is shortly going to return to with the tiger, who does talk eventually, and who speaks words of sense and great wisdom. This is a perfect escape story, just the thing to take you into another world, another time, and another place in the midst of lockdown. My one criticism is the possible overuse of late Victorian street slang. Skedaddle, by the way, doesn't fall into this category, being an old English word of Scandinavian origin, but many words could be skipped by a good reader who would get the sense of the word as much as I did and who would be able to check in the handy Guide to Gutterling at the back of the book. So a cautionary note that the story is for good readers. Mirror magic also falls into this escape category, but with more magic and a bit more conventional magic at that. Brother and sister, secret magic, wicked uncle and slippery mirrors. A good read for a slow day. Tiger Heart is by Penny Crimes, published by Orion in 2020, and Mirror Magic is by Claire Fires, published by Macmillan Children's Books in 2018. Well, the track we heard before was actually The Shadow of Your Smile, featured in the film The Sandpiper, sung by the a cappella group Track 5. Um, it's unusual that I have time to share some of my own recommendations, but this month I want to tell you about one of the books I managed to read during lockdown. It's called Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. I'm especially drawn to stories set in New York City, and I'm sure I'm not alone. The city conjures up the magic of the life we think we may want, the buzz of things happening, the can-do attitude of its people, and the gloss of living in the center of the world. Taffy Brodesser Ackner manages to temper that illusion in this contemporary story of two people going through divorce, trying to make meaning in a world that can be very confusing. The, epot- the eponymous Fleischmann, who we know up front is in trouble, is recently separated from high-flying Rachel, who suddenly disappears. This would not have been entirely shocking for him had it not been her turn to have their two children over the summer, not to mention the inconvenience it posed in his newfound online dating universe. Brodesser Ackner, a seasoned journalist, currently a staff writer on the New York Times magazine, seems to have 
deftly inserted her own voice and observations into a story that is not about her, but in retrospect is a sort of universal comment on the institution of marriage. By the end of the novel, there are multiple perspectives that resonate and beg to be considered, giving layers to what the reader may have anticipated was said to be a light, entertaining read. After a few chapters reading about Dr. Toby and his frustrations and negative feelings towards self-made talent agent Rachel, it dawns on the reader that the narrator's point of view is pivotal to the story being told, and there are not only two but three sides to this marriage in, in breakdown, maybe four. As New Yorker reviewer Katie Waldman observed, you want the narrator to just talk about herself, and we do get snippets, slowly unraveling a perspective that is wound through the telling of the story that may be the overarching point the author wants to make. Flashman is in trouble left me feeling a low-grade despair at the nature of experience of marriage in the modern world, a firm reality check that we should not buy into the veneer, and that human experience, the gritty reality of every person, should always be taken into account. That being said, it's full of humour, and I'd urge you to read it. Stay as sweet as you are Don't let a thing ever change you Stay as sweet as you are Don't let a soul rearrange you don't ever lose all the charm you possess Your loveliness, darling, the way you say yes Stay Divine dear Stay as grand as you are And as you are Tell me that you're mine dear And that was Stay as Sweet as You Are Sung by Danny Williams if you've enjoyed the show, do consider becoming a member of FMR for just 320 rand a year, less than a rand a day. FMR receives no funding or government grants, certainly no bailouts, and FMR membership fees and donations will greatly help the station stay on the air and remain sustainable. Members receive our Opus e-magazine, which includes a newsletter and program guide every month, and your name also goes into a lucky draw for fun prizes. Thanks to all who entered our competition, 
the answer to the question, which poet and playwright's name was conspicuously never mentioned in the novel Hamnet, is of course Shakespeare. And Carol Ann Isha of Plumstead will be contacted after the show to arrange delivery of your prize. Well done, Carol Ann, you're our winner. Thanks to Wesley Lewis for making sure the program ran smoothly and Rick Everett for his inspired choice of music yet again. Matinee is up next with Brendan Van Rain after the news. So from me, Cindy Moritz, stay well, stay safe, and remember, reading can be safely done at a social distance, so feel free to indulge. FMR.